Today we're going to be focusing in on chapter two, verses one through five. I asked Megan to read the, um, the, the previous verses in chapter one, just so we can get the context, because actually Paul is, in these five verses that we're going to look at, he is, he's really concluding the argument that began in chapter one, verse 17. In chapter one, verse 17, he said, Christ sent me to, to preach the gospel, not with um, eloquence, not with human wisdom, but he sent me to preach the gospel uh, with, the, with the power of God. And so that the cross is not emptied of that power. So that's where Paul started. And now this whole section that ends in chapter five, verse two, has been all about this, this contrast between God's power, God's wisdom versus man's power and man's wisdom. So let me read verses one through five again real quickly and we'll take it from there. So chapter two, verses one through five, Paul says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so here, with this paragraph, Paul, as I said, he's, he's concluding the argument uh, that began. And in that argument, both the message of the cross and the Corinthian church's very existence stands in contradiction to the, uh, the present infatuation that the Corinthians had with worldly power and wisdom. So what Paul is doing now, for one reason or another, uh, the Corinthians have now been very much drawn to ideas of, of power and wisdom that, that were not rooted in the gospel, but were rooted in the culture that they came out of. And, and so now they're, they're enamored with that. that. That's where they're wanting to identify. They're wanting to uh, feel like they're in that, somebody category. And so as we've seen, as a result of this, they're, uh, they're creating these divisions that are centered around people's personality, people's giftings, and things like that. I'm of Paul, one said. I'm of Apollos, another said. I'm of Cephas, I'm of Peter, uh, someone else said. And Paul's point is that not only is this the way the world functions, but this is actually the, completely antithetical to the message of the gospel, and it's really antithetical to what God has done in your own lives. 
So he reminds them that the message of the cross is scandalous to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek. And he reminds them that they themselves, they themselves, the ones God had chosen for salvation, were not for the most part from that somebody category, wise by human standards, influential, of noble birth. They were just everyday, ordinary people. They were the commoners. They, they were the ones that others, those who were wise and powerful and uh, affluent in the culture, these are the ones that they would look down on. And so what the Corinthians have forgotten is that the kingdom of Christ that they have become a part of is, is not like the world. It, it's really an upside-down kingdom. Upside down in the sense that it's, it's just completely different than the way everything else is. The, the reality is that the kingdom of Christ is the right-side-up kingdom because this is how things are supposed to be, but the whole world is flipped on its head because of sin, and the church is, is a minority, so you know, the church is the, is the one that seems like, well, this, this is odd. You know, this, is, this shouldn't be this way. But the fact of the matter is the church is the way it's supposed to be, at least when we are living out the faith as we are supposed to. But point is, it's upside down in people's thinking. Like Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, be the servant of all. Well, that's, that, that's not the way, the way the world thinks, right? world thinks if you want to be great, Get power over people. Make them your servants. That's how the world considers uh, uh, somebody who's great. So, the Corinthians are, for whatever reason, they're wanting to be part of all of that again. They want the recognition and approval of the world. So here in these verses, Paul lays out further the ethos of the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ, the ethos, the, the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in, the, uh, you know, the atmosphere that, that is to permeate the kingdom of Christ is that human wisdom and human strength are of little consequence in the kingdom of Christ. God's wisdom and power are what is essential. So that's the point that Paul's making as he wraps up this argument in these, um, these verses here. Now, just a quick word. The, the important thing when we're studying the Bible is to, uh, to understand, especially in the New Testament letters, that... Um, that there are propositions, that there are arguments, that there are positions that are being set forth. And the way to understand what the scripture is saying is to follow those out to their conclusion. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because although we appreciate the fact that our Bible is divided into chapters and verses, we have to realize that uh, sometimes the chapter ends, but the thought keeps going on. But we get conditioned in our heads to thinking that 
the end of the chapter is the end of the thought. But that's not necessarily the way it is. Sometimes the, the people who put in uh, the chapters and the verses in the 16th century, sometimes they nailed it. Sometimes they got it right. Yeah, this is the perfect break right here. Other times it's like, wait, what? why is it breaking right here? Because the thought is going on. So chapter one, verse 17 begins the thought or begins the argument. Chapter two, verse five ends the argument. So we're coming back around to look at all that Paul has been saying here where he's talking about uh, the message of the cross being foolishness to those who are perishing. Uh, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, where he says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe, and so forth. So all of this is connected. Now, we want to look at a few things specifically that Paul says here, and and then we'll come, our, our main point today is to, uh, again, just tie together all that he's been saying. And what his real objective here is to contrast the power of God with human power and what people think about human power and to show that the power of God is what matters. And the power of God is displayed and connected to and understood through the cross. So, but let's look at a few things Paul says. And I'm gonna put this in question form. So what does it mean when Paul says his preaching was not with eloquence or wise and persuasive Words. That's what he says here, right? He says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. And then he says that he was uh, with them in weakness, in great fear and trembling. And then he says uh, that his preaching was not with wise and persuasive words. So what is he talking about? Does Paul mean that all true preaching or preachers of the gospel must be inarticulate and lacking in eloquence and persuasion? Is Paul against that? Now, let me remind you that the, the immediate context for Paul is that there are people that those in the church are being impressed by and trying to imitate who in the culture, this is what they do. They are orators. They are celebrities because they are, uh, they're amazing with words. They're amazing speakers. We don't have like a parallel to it so much in our culture today. But in those days, uh, there, there were these groups of, of people. They were, on the one hand, they were called sophists, some of them, because their emphasis was more on the philosophy. But then the rhetoricians, although they had a philosophical emphasis, they were the ones who were the, the wordsmiths. They were the ones who could say it in amazing ways. And their emphasis was on not what was said as much as how it was said. So they were not so much into the content as they were into the form. 
And so when Paul talks about this, this eloquent speech and, and this persuasion, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about what they were doing at the time. He's not talking about somebody who is, is a good communicator. He's talking about what's being communicated and what the motive is for the communication. So uh, the 16th century reformer, John Calvin, some of you have heard that name. Uh, John Calvin, in, even in his day, there was a misunderstanding about what, what Paul was actually communicating here. So he gave a beautiful response, and I want to read it to you. He said this. He said, but what if someone in our day speaks in rather brilliant fashion and makes the teaching of the gospel sparkle with his eloquence? Should he be rejected on that account as if he spoiled it or obscured the glory of Christ? I answer, first of all, that eloquence is not in conflict with the simplicity of the gospel at all. When free from contempt of the gospel, it not only gives it first place and is subject and is subject to it, but also serves as a handmaid, serves her mistress. For as Augustine says, so here Calvin is quoting Augustine, and he, he says, Augustine said, uh, he who gave Peter, the fisherman, also gave Cyprian, the orator. Now, Augustine was a fourth century theologian who is probably the most famous theologian in the history of Christianity, and he's referring, obviously, to the Apostle Peter, and he's also referring to Cyprian, who was, uh, in Augustine's day, he was known as a great Christian preacher. There was another man named John Chrysostom, who his uh, Chrysostom means um, golden mouthed. So there were these, uh, at least a couple of guys in the early history of the church who were amazing uh, at their communication Skills, But Augustine says, he who gave Peter the fisherman also gave Cyprian the orator. And then Calvin says, Augustine means by that that both men are from God, although the one who is much the superior in authority, that's Peter, yet he lacks in any attractiveness of speech while the other who sits at Peter's feet, Cyprian would have sat at the feet of Peter, he's famous for his outstanding eloquence. So we must not condemn or reject the kind of eloquence which does not aim at captivating people with an outward brilliancy of words or at intoxicating them with empty delights or at tickling their ears with its jingle or at covering up the cross of Christ with its ostentation. In the second place, I replied that the Spirit of God has also an eloquence of his own. It shines with a splendor that is natural to it, peculiar to itself. The prophets have such eloquence, particularly Isaiah, David, and Solomon. It follows that with eloquence, which is in keeping with the Spirit of God, is not bombastic and ostentatious, and does not make a lot of noise that amounts to nothing. Rather, it is genuine and effectual and has more sincerity than refinement. So Augustine is explaining what Paul meant when he said that he did not come with persuasive words of human wisdom. He didn't mean that he wasn't... Uh, 
articulate. It didn't mean that he wasn't clearly communicating. It meant that he wasn't uh, adopting the, the methods and the mindset, more importantly, of those who were doing that at the time. So what Paul is condemning is preaching that is motivated by embarrassment of or contempt for the cross or the desire to promote and glorify oneself, which was the case with the rhetoricians at the time. Uh, Paul is referring to those who love the sound of their own voice and the thoughts of their own minds more than the message of the gospel. That was the problem. In other words, these were people who were embarrassed about and ashamed of the cross so they preached to Jesus who, although they would never necessarily have denied that he was crucified, they just kind of, let's just not talk about that. They just conveniently skipped over that part. But what Paul is saying is that in doing so, they've missed the gospel itself. And in doing so, they have emptied themselves of, or and their message has been emptied of the power of God. Because the power of God is connected to the cross. But remember, in that time, the cross was completely scandalous. It was offensive. It was, like I pointed out before, we think of a cross today and there's something sentimental about it. There's something beautiful. We use it as jewelry. Uh, you know, we put it as emblems on our churches or wherever. In those days, nobody thought of the cross like that because the cross, as far as they knew, they were places of execution. They were places that the average person never wanted to even view a crucifixion. So to insist that, that the Messiah, that the Savior of the world is somebody who was on the cross, this is gonna create a problem. So these people are gonna avoid it. Gordon Fee, a commentator that I'm reading as I'm studying through 1 Corinthians, he said this, he says, what Paul is rejecting is not preaching, not even persuasive preaching, rather it is the real danger in all preaching, self-reliance. The danger lies in letting the form and content get in the way of what should be the single concern, the gospel proclaimed through human weakness but accompanied by the powerful work of the Spirit so that lives are changed through a divine human encounter. So that, that's the issue here. Now, um, like I said, there is... There isn't an exact parallel today. I'm, just, I'm thinking in, in the realm of the church. You know, how do, how do we take what Paul is saying to the Corinthians then? Where do we see this happening in the realm of the church where we might uh, say like, oh, wow, okay, that, we, we have to, we, we need to avoid that. Well, where we're gonna see it in the church today is Again, it's going to be where a message is preached 
And maybe there's a strong personality. Maybe there's a charismatic personality. Maybe there's a a person who is just a, a wizard with words. But the cross is going to be conspicuously absent. We're not going to talk about that. That, That's offensive. The cross is still as offensive today as it's ever been. Cheryl reminded me of this after first service. She said, remember when we uh, used to get those those invites to church back, this is back when we were uh, living down in North San Diego County years ago, but we used to get these invitations to church. You know, some church would come into town, start up new, and then they'd do a mail out and they would invite you to come to their service. And there, two or three different churches did this and we would get the thing in the post. Uh, but they said things like this, you know, come to our relaxed service. It's going to be casual. You're going to feel really comfortable. You won't ever be made to feel guilty. Uh, you won't hear anything that's going to be offensive. You're, it's going to be a feel-good message. And we're going to teach you principles on how to succeed in life and how to have a better marriage and how to manage your finances and you know all of this kind of stuff. And it's almost like every new church that started, they had the same template. They just uh, you know got a different color of paper and then they mailed it out to all the churches in the area. But they were, what they were assuring everybody was, hey, come out to our church. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. And you're never going to hear anything that is going to make you feel uncomfortable. In other words, we're not going to preach the cross. <laughs> That's what they were saying indirectly. That's what Paul is talking about. So, Human wisdom, here's the problem. Human wisdom is incapable of producing what man ultimately needs. What do we need in the end? Do we need to know uh, how to, you know, better raise our kids? Well, raising your kids is important. That's a good thing. Uh, Do we need to know how to be more successful in life? Well, okay, that's helpful in some ways. Do we need marriage encouragement? Yeah, okay, that, that's good. But you know, at the end, that's not the, that's not the ultimate need. That's not the, the, the deepest need. The deepest need is I need to be regenerated because I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. And until I get out of there, anything else is just, it's, it's just putting a temporary... You know, something that's, that's only at best going to temporarily aid me. Only the Spirit of God can regenerate, and God regenerates through the power of the death and resurrection of Christ. God regenerates through the message of the cross. Human wisdom and persuasion can produce varying degrees of reformation but people need more than reformation. We need regeneration. You know, all, people right now are, especially right now, in the COVID context and all the things that have resulted from this, the interpersonal difficulties and struggles, the personal uh, issues of depression and anxiety and all of these things. You know, people are looking for answers right now. And there's a whole bunch of people out there 
offering answers. I read an article that uh, was talking about the Insta evangelist. Now, some of you might be old enough to remember we used to talk about televangelists. And televangelists were people who, they were on television. I don't know that the word evangelist was ever really appropriate because they oftentimes were not preaching the gospel. But, you know, an evangelist can be somebody who's just passionate about a message and they're, they're proclaiming the message. So now we have insta-evangelists, which is, um, you find them on Instagram, and they've got sometimes up to a million followers and they're telling them how to you know, get on in life and how to do better and how to g- get over your anxiety and your depression and things like that. So this is huge. And people are looking for these kinds of answers. But generally what they're going to get is something, if it does anything, it will reform them to some extent, but what's needed is not reformation, what's needed is regeneration. We need a new life. We need a new life because the Bible says that our problems are rooted in the fact that we are dead in our sins. We're disconnected from God who made us and we're under the power of sin, which is stronger than we are. And it inclines us toward destructive living. I need to be set free from that. And it's the gospel through the Holy Spirit that produces this regeneration. So when the cross, here's the point that Paul's making, when the cross is held in contempt, or man's glory is the motive behind preaching, or even when self-reliance is the underlying factor, the spirit is absent and the cross is emptied of its power. So the people who think like, I'm gonna do everybody a favor by not offending anybody, by not talking about this controversial thing like the cross, uh, and that's how I'm gonna help somebody, they're fooling themselves. But a lot of times that's really not even the motive. The motive is I'm going to get more people following me. I'm going to get more people supporting me. I'm going to get more people giving to me so I can build myself up on the backs of everybody else. Now, Calvin referred to it. Another quote I read referred to it, and here it is again. When the cross is held in contempt, what does that mean? There are preachers today who hold the cross in contempt, meaning that they're ashamed of it. They're embarrassed by it. How did this ever get into the message? You know, there there are people today who are part of the evangelical world who are recognized in certain places as evangelical leaders who look at the cross. And when I'm talking about the cross, I'm talking about God sending his son to die for our sins, to die in our place. That's the message of the cross, right? There are preachers that hold that whole idea in contempt. They deny that, that that's really the message. And I can think of one particular British preacher who says that the idea that God sent his son into the world to die for our sin, that is tantamount 
to cosmic child abuse. That's how he refers to it, cosmic child abuse. So for him, the cross is not part of the message. The message is just God loves you. God loves you. And the cross, all the cross is doing, the cross, on the cross, Jesus wasn't paying for sin. On the cross, Jesus was just showing everybody how much God loved them. So we can see that these things are relevant today. This wasn't just an issue in the first century. Now, a couple of things before we come to our conclusion. What did Paul mean? Because he says here that he resolved to not know anything among them except Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's resolve. So what did he mean by that? Well, he did not mean that he would not talk about anything except the cross. So for Paul, the cross was the, the center. It was the core of everything else. Paul's not saying that he's, not, he's only gonna, his message is just, you know, this one sentence, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. But what, he, what he's actually saying is that although Christ crucified is scandalous to the Jews and madness to the Greeks, that he himself would never dismiss, downplay, or in any way seek to obscure the fact that Christ was crucified. So for Paul, the cross was front and center, even though it was scandalous to the Jews. Now, listen, I've preached a long time, and I've been in places where I have been tempted in my own mind at times to hold back on things. Man, if you say that right now, you're gonna lose everybody. If you say that right now, you're gonna offend everybody. I remember preaching on the streets of New York City the week after uh, 9-11. And there were literally hundreds of people on the streets. And we were, we were there gathered in Union Square and I mean, it was just a surreal situation. And I remember standing there and speaking to this crowd. And as I'm speaking to the crowd about Jesus, the devil is shouting in my ear, don't say that. Don't talk about that cross. Don't, don't talk about that. You're going to lose everybody if you do that. That's a real thing. The devil knows that the cross is where the power is. That's why he doesn't want it to be preached. And those, those temptations are, are with us today. And some people just say, well, you know, this, this message is too harsh. It's, it's, too, it's too offensive. A few years ago, um, a song uh, that was written by the Gettys, a song that we have sung quite often, there's, there's a lyric in there that talks about, um, you know, this idea of Christ dying for our sins, paying the penalty, um, and, you know, bearing uh, in, in himself the judgment that was due to our sins. And many churches refuse to sing that verse in the song. And they even wrote to the author, Keith Getty. Keith told me this personally. 
they wrote to him requesting, because they wanted to take the song and they wanted to put it in their church hymnal, they wrote to him requesting that they could still put the song in even though they were going to omit that particular sentence because it was, it was offensive. Because it made it sound like we're really sinners and you know we should have died on a cross. And Keith said, well, I'm sorry. That's the way the song that is the song. It's not only the way I wrote it, it's what I believe the Bible says. So no, you cannot use my song uh, if you're going to use it that way. But the point is, the offense of the cross remains. So what Paul is saying is that he's never gonna do that. He's never gonna dismiss it. He's never gonna downplay it. He's never going to obscure the message. What Paul says when he says that he determined or uh, resolved to know nothing among them except Christ crucified, he meant that the cross would be central, the central point of his gospel. And that is the biblical picture, of course. And that's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. Now, as I said, this, pre this pressure or temptation to dismiss or minimize the significance of the cross is still with us today. So there, there are people today that are very happy for you to believe in Jesus, the Jesus who is a, just a good moral teacher. There is a Jesus that fits into the culture. He's a good moral teacher. He's a spiritually enlightened person. He might even be in the category of a miracle worker. He might even be a prophet. That Jesus is not offensive. And you can get a following. You can get people to buy in and to listen in to a message about this Jesus. But the cross is never a part of this Jesus's experience. And for those who proclaim this kind of a Jesus, in their view, the cross is either a tragic mishap or a moral atrocity. Now, really quickly, I wanna give you an example. So atonement means It means to cover sin. And in the Old Testament, we have the Day of Atonement. This was the day when the sacrifice was made and, and the sins of the nation were covered, the nation of Israel. Now, we come into the New Testament and Jesus becomes the, the one who his blood atones for our sins. His blood covers our sins. So there are, in, in the theological world, there are theories of atonement. There are different ideas of what atonement means, in other words. Now, I think the Bible clearly uh, teaches that the core idea behind atonement is this idea that the blood of Jesus covers our sin. But there are those who opt for and emphasize other theories. So I'll give you just really quickly three other theories. There is the martyr theory. 
about Christ's death. So these are perspectives on the death of Christ. Uh, the martyr theory. Christ's death was similar in kind to that of any other noble man who has given up his life as a sacrifice for a principle and for truth or cause. So when, when a person who embraces the, the martyr theory thinks about the cross, they think of, well, this, you know, the cross was, was tragic, but uh, Jesus so believed in his mission, he was a martyr for the mission. He was a martyr for the cause. And so he then becomes an, an inspiration to us to be devoted to the cause, to the point that we would even give up our lives. Then there is the moral example theory. Christ's death has an influence upon mankind for moral improvement. The example of his suffering ought to soften human hearts and to help people reform and to better their condition. So again, this is the lens through which some people see the atonement. Well, Jesus set for us a good example. He was selfless. He gave up himself. And so we should all be selfless. We should all give of ourselves. We should give up our rights for others and so forth. And then thirdly, there is the love of God theory. Christ died to show people how much God loved them and to reveal a God of love. So on the cross, to the, the love of God theory people of the atonement, I said that backward maybe, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> The, the love of God, people, is, is like, look at the cross. This just shows us how much God loved us. Now, there is some truth to that, obviously, right? But here's the problem. All of these views leave out one essential element, and that is that atonement is Christ's death being first and foremost to save us from sin and judgment. See, that's, that's called penal substitutionary atonement. atonement. So there's a penalty. And because we could not pay the penalty, a substitute, Jesus, paid the penalty that we owed. He paid the debt that we owed. That is missing from all of these theories. And... This, this is the offensive thing. This is the offense of the cross that Paul talks about uh, in writing to the Galatians, for example. But the cross tells us that we are lawless, guilty rebels who deserve to be banished forever from God's presence. That's what the cross is saying. That's why it's so offensive. But the cross is saying something else simultaneously. This is the interesting thing about the cross. It tells us that because Jesus is dying the death that we should die. It tells us that, but it also tells us, it also tells us that God loved us so deeply, even in our lost and rebellious state, that he sent his son to rescue us by paying the penalty for our crimes. So the cross is a message of our guilt and culpability and uh, condemnation, but it's a message of God's love and grace and mercy all at the same time. 
Now, the stumbling block of the cross for the, the religious, for the moralist, for the philanthropist, the cross is a stumbling block because it says you can't work your way into favor with God. It is foolishness to the philosophers, the intellectuals, the thinkers, because it says you can't reason your way into favor with God. You see, what the cross says is this. The only thing one can do to gain God's favor is to believe, to put your personal trust in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That's the message of the cross. So it says, sorry, there's nothing you can do to remedy your situation. There's no reformation that can reform you to the extent that is needed. You have to have a new birth. You have to have a new life. You have to have your sins forgiven, and that happens through the cross. Now, Paul says that he kept the cross front and center for this reason. Look at the very last verse here, verse 5. He says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, the question among Bible commentators and theologians is, what, did, what is Paul talking about? Because he, he's talking about he came in the demonstration and, of the spirit and power. What, what is he referring to there? What is this power that he's talking about? Now, Paul... As he, as he's he's connecting, like I said in the beginning, he's connecting these two things. He says that when you preach the cross, the power of God is there. He says when you neglect the cross, when you hold it in contempt or you avoid it, he said then you empty the message of its power. So. What, what is the power that he's talking about? Some say that, well, this is Paul's talking about when he preached and you know, he went to the different places that miraculous things were taking place. Maybe there's something to that. But I think the real, the real thing that Paul is talking about here is the, the dynamic power of the spirit that comes and awakens us out of our death in trespasses and sins. See, that's what, the, that's what the message of the cross does. The message of the cross, when it comes, when the, when the message of the cross is, is delivered, whether it's humanly eloquent or not, is not the point, because the power is in the message itself. It's like a seed uh, goes into the ground and the seed itself contains the power of life. So the gospel is, the, is, in a sense, it's like the seed of the life of God. And as that life of God goes forth, it brings us to life. And so the power that Paul is really describing here is the power that all the Corinthians knew firsthand but evidently forgot. 
And what did they know firsthand? They knew that God had changed their lives. And in the fifth, sixth chapter, in the sixth chapter, he goes through this, this whole list of behaviors that will not inherit the kingdom. Um, talks about sexual sin, talks about idolatry, talks about you know, theft and embezzlement and, and greed and murder and all of this stuff. And you know what he says? He says, and such were some of you, but you have been sanctified. You've been changed. How did they change? The power of God. See, that's, that's the power that he's talking about. It's the power to regenerate. It's the power to make us alive. It's the power that comes and brings us to the consciousness of our sin. Now, I don't know about you, but for myself, I remember not being a Christian, and I remember how dead I was to anything that had to do with God. I remember how dead I was to any seriousness about the sinful life I was living. It was just what you did, right? But suddenly there came this moment where the gospel came with power, and I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that I was separated from God. I suddenly came, I became alive to those realities. That was the power of God. That's what the gospel does. It brings us to that place of awaking us out of this state of deadness and showing us that we are hopeless and helpless to change our condition apart from God himself in Christ. And so Paul, he, he doesn't want the Corinthians to forget this because this is the root of everything. And now they're, they're sort of, in a sense, they're sort of trading this away for this external look good kind of stuff that, that has no power. The message of Jesus Christ and him crucified and him raised from the dead is the most powerful message in the universe. It has the power to raise you from the dead and to give you eternal life. It's so amazing. It's such an amazing thing. And you know, sometimes uh, as, a, as a preacher, sometimes I have found myself at times preaching and thinking in my own mind, how simple this is. Gosh, oh Lord, how is this ever gonna do anything? You know, it's just like, and, and you know, sometimes even when you're preaching it, you're like the kind of passion and everything that should be there because you're preaching the greatest message in the world for whatever reason, that's not really with you at the moment. And, and in your mind, you're just thinking, how, how is this gonna do anything? But then what happens if somebody comes up and says, hey, can I tell you this story? 
you were preaching this one time and you said this and I knew I needed Christ and I gave him my life and then they go on to tell you about who they were and what they were doing and how radically God has transformed them and you're looking at them like, well, you sure look transformed. <laughs> and, and you're like, wow, how does that happen? Happens through the power of God. The power of God. I don't know how many of you ever had the opportunity to hear Billy Graham preach. But I remember um, hearing Billy preach on a number of occasions. Not in person, but I would watch his sermons and things. And I remember the thing that always just struck me so deeply about Billy was on the one hand, the utter simplicity of his message, and on the other hand, the power of his message. And I'll never forget, um, it was, I think it was back in the 80s or maybe it was the early 90s or something, but th there was this moment, and you know, Billy's quite old at this time, and uh, this is one of the last crusades he did, and it was, it was the one where, because they used the internet, it was like the, great, the largest audience in, in his entire preaching ministry. And here's a guy who preached to a million people live, not on the internet, but they were there. But, but I remember there was all this buildup to this, this event. People were praying and, you know, this is going to be the greatest evangelistic effort in all of history. And, and I remember all of this. And I, I remember just waiting for that day, like, man, this is going to come. And I'm, boy, I want to hear what he says. And I'll never forget listening to that message. And at the, as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, this is the simplest thing I have ever heard. And not only was it simple, but on this particular occasion, and Billy was somewhat older, on this particular occasion, he was kind of stumbling through some things. And, you know, he gave an illustration, he told a story, and he got it wrong, and he kind of had to backtrack and say, wait, no, it didn't happen like that, it happened like this, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, this is amazing. This is like preaching to more people than anybody's ever preached to in history. And this message is so simple. But you know, that tens of thousands of people's lives were transformed that day. Not because of his eloquence, although at times he could be very eloquent. Not because of his great persuasive powers, because like I said, at this stage in his life, those things were kind of absent. But those lives were changed because he stuck to the cross he knew that's, that's, that's where the power was. And I'm sure that there are thousands of people in the world today who from that day forward, their lives have never been the same because of that message. Because of the power in that message. And my friends, let's never lose, let's never lose that understanding. It's not human wisdom. It's not eloquence. These, God's ways are different than man's ways. And 
God's power is not dependent on your power. And God's wisdom is not dependent on your wisdom or my wisdom. It is independent of us. And sometimes we can get hung up on, I can get hung up on, oh gosh, I don't know, I didn't really say that. Oh, I wish I would. I can't tell you how many regrets I've had after preaching, thinking, oh, if I only would have said this, if I should have said it this way, oh, why didn't I say it like that? And you know, sometimes you finally you just go, okay, forget it, never mind, Lord. <laughs> It's really not up to me anyway. It's up to you. So do we want to be eloquent and persuasive? Yes, as much as we can. But we recognize in the end that that's not really, that's not the thing. God's word, his gospel is independent power. It's God's power. And so, that's why Paul is not going to move away at all from the message of the cross. And that's why we can never move away from the message of the cross. The simple message that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever will put their trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so, in conclusion, the contrast between human wisdom and God's wisdom, human power and God's power. We want to always remember that, as Paul so beautifully put it here, I love this part the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength.